that man that was a demon-possessed man that lived among the graves and the tomb, tombstones, when, when Jesus got finished with him, it says he was clothed and in his right mind. Hallelujah. Amen. He was naked. He cut himself. He lived among the tombstones. People tried to bind him like an animal, and he broke the chains. But the Lord set him free, and he was not the same man. He wasn't cutting himself anymore, and it says he was clothed and in his right mind. Hallelujah. That's what the Lord does for us, among many other things he does for us. We're studying the life of Elijah, okay, the prophet Elijah. We're going on Wednesday nights. We're studying through his life. We've got some visitors here tonight. We're so glad you're with us. But that's what we're doing on Wednesday nights right now. We're studying the life of the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament, primarily 1 Kings chapter 17 and, and chapter 18. I want you, uh, before we go there, we're going to go to 1 Kings 18 in just a moment. But let's look in the New Testament at James we quote it all the time. I want to open tonight by reading it. James chapter 5, right towards the end of the, the epistle. James chapter 5, verse 17. Well, let's pick up in verse 16. James 5, 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth fruit. He shut up the heavens with his prayer, and then he opened them again. Now, this was in the will of God, of course. He wasn't just wielding power any way he chose, but he heard from the Lord, and he was used by God to do this, and he was a, he was a man of faith, and he was a man of like passions like we are. In other words, he was just a hum, human being. He wasn't created in some different way than we are, like some angelic being. He was a man that was a sinner that needed a Savior. He was a man of like passions, and yet he, come, he came to know the Lord. He came to have this relationship with God one by faith, where he was justified by faith, as all the Old Testament saints were. And he stood in God's presence continually. So he was always in the presence of the Lord, hearing him, being filled by his spirit, and being used by the Lord to do his will. He was the man for this hour, okay? God has different men and women for different hours. Well, he was the man for this hour in a very troublesome time in Israel's history. The nation had uh, wandered far from the Lord. The, the kingdoms were divided into north and south. And the people, uh, we know because we've talked about it for months here, but the, the nation had forsaken the Lord. It didn't happen overnight, but it came to this head where they had totally forsaken Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, play, and then placed uh, Jezebel the queen. Ahab was the king, wicked, and she was even more wicked. He was weak. She was wicked. And he... Uh, she, she destroyed all the altars of Jehovah in the land. She purged the land as far as she could uh, from worship to the Lord, true God of Israel. And in those places where there had been altars to Jehovah, she raised up altars to Baal and Astarte and Ashtaroth and so forth. And they even built a temple in Jezreel. That's where the king's palace was to Baal. So there was an actual temple where the people came to worship and altars. And she had all the prophets of Jehovah hunted down and killed like animals. 
So it was the official religion of the land, God's people, the apple of his eye, the official religion of the land had become worship to a dead God, Baal. Okay? And God has his man. Don't ever think he doesn't. Don't think that right now, with people saying, I wonder if that's Antichrist. I wonder if that's going to be the Antichrist. And they might be. I don't know. You know, I'll, I'm going to be raptured before all that comes into its fullness. And so will you if you're born again. But uh, God always has his man or woman or men or church or, or gathering. He always has somebody in the wings that nobody knows about but heaven knows about. And when he's ready, I've described it like pulling the arrow out of his quiver. It's been in his quiver all the time. When he's ready, he's going to pull that thing and shoot it forth, and nothing's going to stop it. And nobody's going to stop God from doing what he desires to do on a grand scale, okay, or in an individual life, whatever it may be. And so God had his man Elijah. We know the story. God says, go tell Ahab it's not going to rain. But according to my word, he does that. God hides him and provides for him during a time of no rain, which led to a time of drought, which led to a time of, I would think, famine and hardships in the land, okay? And for three and a half years, God hid him, and God sustained him. They weren't wasted years. That was time of pre preparation in his heart. And then God says, so we'll look at 1 Kings 18, 1, and then we're going to skip down. 1 Kings 18, 1. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came. That actually was three and a half years. The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Very straightforward, right? He, he's going to uh, go show yourself to Ahab. The time of waiting and hiding out uh, in the shadows is over. Three and a half years have passed. I want you to go show yourself to the king. And I'm, who's going to do it? The Lord's going to send rain upon the earth. So God begins to unfold his plan. And we talked about this last week. Normally, God unfolds his plan little by little. You're sitting here tonight and you're saying, I, I don't have a clue. You know, all I know is I trusted in Jesus. I don't know what's next for me. God knows what's next for you. Keep your eyes upon him. He's going to lead you. He's not going to show you the whole thing at once. It would overwhelm us if we knew everything God has for us now. Uh, he shows us what we need to know. He shows us when he's ready for us to know. And all the time in between is not wasted. The, all the time in between is absolutely necessary. It's necessary because he's preparing you. Maybe he's preparing others, you know, for, for your interaction with them. But he reveals it to us nonetheless, and you're going to know God's will for your life when you know God. You're going to know God's will for your life when you walk closely to the good shepherd and you walk in the light of his word. You don't have to wait for some pastor to tell you. You're going to know yourself. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow. You can hear from your pastor. Amen. I pray you do. But you're going to know in your heart of hearts from the Lord speaking to you. He'll unveil the plan, and let's read a little of it now. So skip on down in this chapter to verse 17. It came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art, that, art thou he that troubleth Israel? Kind of a rebuke. You're, you're the one that caused all these problems. No, he's not. 
He's the one about to fix the problems. God's going to use to fix the problem. You know, the problem was Ahab's sin. The problem, problem was Jezebel's sin. The problem was the sins of the people. And God's going to deal with sin. Amen? He's going to deal with sin. Are you he that troubles Israel? And he answered, this is Elijah speaking, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that you have, here's what they've done. You've forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send, he's telling the king what to do. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal 450, and the prophets of the groves 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. So here's the plan, right? The plan's unfolding. Evidently, God's given it to Ahab, I mean, to, to Elijah, so that he could convey, convey it to the king. So that's the plan. These prophets of Baal, 450, plus the prophets of the groves. This would have been in the high places you read about in the Bible. They're under every green tree, offering up sacrifices and offering up their children unto Baal as death. Kill, you know, sacrifice literally in the fire to Baal, 400 of those priests, and they ate comfortably and protected by the government, basically, at Jezebel's table. This is about to be over with. God's had enough, okay? And he wants to turn the people back to, 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 to himself. And Elijah, a man of faith, a man of like passions, he wasn't in any doubt that God was going to do it. So he's not standing before Ahab in fear and trembling. He, know, he knows the Lord. He knows the Lord is with him. He knows he's in the presence of the Lord. Ahab doesn't realize it. And he knows what God is going to do. And so he knew that God would answer by fire when the time would come. And he knew that Baal's altar would remain without fire, just there. Just a sacrifice with no God to answer. So Ahab obeyed Elijah, and he sent and gathered the people together and the prophets, okay? And so it took some time when you really, and I don't think about these things, but if you're gathering the whole nation of Israel together, it's going to take a little time. So here's Elijah. He says, gather them to me on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel had been historically a place of worship. When he looked off to the north, you know, he, he would see, uh, uh, I mean, to the west, he would see the Mediterranean Sea, and he looked in another direction, and he would see Mount Hermon uh, towards the north. He looks down at the valley at the base of the mountain is the Valley of Kishon and the Brook of Kishon where those prophets are going to be killed, uh, where Sisera, one of the uh, enemies of Israel of Syria, was killed in that place. And so he's there. And he's not shaken in his boots, and he's not scared. And, you know, it's interesting that Ahab, you think, why didn't Ahab just grab him and kill him? For three and a half years, they've been looking for him. I think there was a fear of God that Ahab knew this man is of God. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he didn't take him and kill him. And you see that a lot of times through the Bible where people could have taken could, people could have taken Jesus, the Pharisees, and, he, and they wanted to stone him, but they didn't stone him. He passed right through, right, and walked off, and nobody laid a hand on him. When we're in the will of God, we're safe, okay? It doesn't mean it might not be God's will for you to be martyred or me to be martyred. Lots of godly people have been martyred, but 
the point is here, there was not a fear. And Ahab probably thought somehow, if we're going to get rain, it depends on this man, Elijah. Okay? And so he didn't kill him. Whatever was going through his mind, he didn't kill him. He obeyed him. So he sends couriers out or messengers out throughout the whole land to gather the people together. And he's, he's just having to continue. It probably took days. I would think it would take a few days. But he's having to stay himself upon the Lord and keep his faith in God. Lord, I know what you're going to do. I know what you've promised me uh, you're going to do. And, you know, the Bible says, we, we opened with it from James, that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. It uses Elijah as the example. And a lot of times we may think it took a lot of fervent effectual prayer for the rain to come, and it did. But it also, I don't think it took more or less for the fire to come down. It was a shorter period. It wasn't three and a half years. But still, I think any time he prayed, to me is the point, he prayed effectually and fervently. Whether he's praying for fire to come, which basically by the time he's through speaking, we're going to read later in this chapter, the fire comes down. Or if it's a space of three and a half years uh, or seven times he's praying right on Mount Carmel for the rain to come after the fire, he's still praying effectually and fervently, and it still avails much. I would say this, don't, you know, if you're looking at it basically, and so we see the people gathering, and it takes time. The effectual fervent prayer is always going to be first before the fire, whether it's a short time or a long time, because that's the way God chooses to work. He chooses to answer prayer. Say, well, if he's going to do it anyway, why didn't he just do it? He doesn't need me to pray. He calls me to pray. He calls me to be part of what's going on. He calls me to be an instrument. And he chooses to have his people pray to him and then respond to the prayers of faith in Jesus' name for his glory. He chooses to work that way. They prayed about 10 days in the upper room for the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire fell. But that time, why it was 10 days, the Lord only knows. But it was the day of Pentecost. But still, the, the 10 days of prayer per, had to precede the coming down of, of the gift that he had already promised. God already promised. He said, wait in Jerusalem till you receive the promise, which you've heard. And they knew what the promise was, and they knew that, was, and they knew that God promised it. And yet he, they were still praying in the upper room in one accord. God chooses to respond to our prayers. It strengthens our faith. It, it teaches us to persevere. You're praying for a lost loved one? Persevere. Pray. You're praying for a revival for our country? Persevere. God wants us to persevere. And then he, he's going to do it. He can do it quickly. And when he does it, he's going to do it quickly. When he answers, it's not going to be a, this long, drawn-out process. Same with the fire that, that came on Pentecost and the fire that's going to come on the altar. But uh, he... He's standing there, and it's almost this picture when finally the people are gathered from everywhere. They're coming to Mount Carmel, plus the 800, and I'm going to group them together, the 850 false prophets that are there, and the nation of Israel, and Ahab, and I'm sure Obadiah was in the crowd as well, as well somewhere who we've talked about, that you would say, well, it's one man. He doesn't have any weapons. He doesn't, it's one man. 
against 850 prophets of Baal. It's one man against a kingdom. It's one man against a nation. But I can tell you right now, Elijah, say, don't feel sorry for me. Okay? Don't you feel sorry for me. I got all of heaven at my back. Okay? And we do as well. And so he expected to see before long that nation bowing before Jehovah. He expected to see it. Amen? He knew God was with him. And so, again, he's not anything special or superhuman. He's a man of like passions who believed, right, who trusted the Lord. And so he's there on the mountain. The prophets are gathered together, and and he's about to, he he makes four, uh, I'm sorry, he makes seven, I guess, speeches or statements on this day when the people are finally gathered together, okay, he makes four statements. And the first one is such, is to me one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible is in verse 21. Let's look at it. Elijah came unto all the people. So now they're gathered, right? God's about to work. God is with them. The Bible tells us nothing shall be impossible to him that believes. And he believes. So the first thing he says to the people, and I would think you could have heard a pin drop. They're probably wondering what's going on. The king ordered us to be here. They don't know what's going on. Here's Elijah. He's going to bring some clarity to it. You know what? Before I read it, I was thinking of this. You know, on the day of Pentecost, we mentioned that. When, when the people, the 120 that were in the upper room, that included the disciples, when they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and the, the Feast of Pentecost was going on at that time. So you had, had people from literally from other countries and other cities and stuff in Jerusalem for this feast. And so they're passing around. The streets are busy. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. They go out into the streets. They're speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. And the people couldn't make heads or tails of it. Some said they're crazy. Some said they're this. Some said they're, uh, uh, they're drunk. And Peter stands up. And I always think about that. He's about to preach this sermon, right? And 3,000 people are going to be saved. But he stands up and he says, we're not drunk. I'm speaking to you very clearly, soberly. We're not drunk as you suppose. This is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. That I'm going to pour out my spirit upon your handmaids and young men and so forth shall prophesy. This is that. God always has this person as well to bring clarity to what in the world's going on. Somebody that can say, this is what's happening. Ahab, I'm not troubling Israel. Your sin is troubling Israel. You've forsaken the Lord and you worship in Baal. That's why it hadn't rained for three and a half years. Somebody can bring sense to it. God's going to have his person, his man or woman or people to do that. So here he says, he says in verse 21, to the whole nation, Elijah came unto all the people and said, how long halt ye? Between two opinions. If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered answered him not a word. Can you imagine? It's just, as I said, it's somebody to just point it out. Somebody to just shut all the, the talking heads down. And the opinions. And what if this? And maybe that. And somebody that just stands up and says, if God's God, serve him. 
If Baal's God, serve him. Why are you straddling the fence? Why are you stuck between two opinions? And here's the whole nation. They are the, the, the people of Israel. They're the ones that God has chosen to be that people through which the Messiah would come, the people that were be, to be a light to the Gentiles. They were the apple of his eyes. He had not totally forsaken them, but still... They're halting between two opinions. I talked to the boys at Parkview today about this scripture right here. It's ministered to me because I lived my life as a believer halting between two opinions. Where I knew God wanted God, and yet I was still wanted all these things over here. Not Baal, but I wanted things in the world and friends and things like that in the world. And I wanted these good parts of you know, Christianity and everything over here as well. Why are you halting between two opinions? You can't live there. You cannot live between these two opinions. You cannot. Not that it's difficult. You can't. We're not given that choice. If God is God, serve him. Joshua said the same thing before he died. After they were in the promised land, there remained yet a lot of land still to be possessed. And he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. The gods that were back on the other side of the, the flood in the Egyptian gods, the God of these Canaanites that, that, whose land you dwell in, or the Lord God Jehovah. As for me and my house, we're going to serve God. You know what he did? He made a choice. He made a choice. It was clear. There was no in-between. There was no questions. And I'm going with God. I'll live for God. I'll die for God. But that's who I'm following. And that's what God's called us to do. And that's who... Uh, how he's called us to believe and to serve. We're not halfway Christians. We're not halfway Christians and halfway in the world. We're all of his or we're none of his. We're saved and alive in Christ or we're dead in our sins and trespasses. There's not an in-between. And so he makes that statement. I studied it. What is that actually called? He uttered a remonstrance. That's what that word means, a remonstrance. It's not a word I use a lot. But when Elijah said what he said, why do you halt between two opinions? It's a forcefully reproachful protest. A forcefully reproachful protest. Why are you halting between two opinions? If God is God, if the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. Now, he wasn't asking it in the sense that he was confused, okay? He stood in the presence of Jehovah. He wanted the people to see, and, and we'll point this out. He wanted the people to see the foolishness of their position. Why, had, why were they halting between two opinions? When I was living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, so to speak, it was a foolish position, it's a weak position. It's an unstable position. It's an unwise position. It's an unblessed position or stance to take. And Elijah wanted to see the pe- and God wanted through Elijah for the people to see the foolishness of your position. Two religions and two deities, we know that Baal's not really a deity, but the people worshiped him as such. Two religions that are diametrically opposed, they can't both be right. Right? They cannot both be true. And so when Jesus says, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, and somebody says, yeah, I believe Jesus is your way, but uh, the Hindus come this way. We're all going to the same place. 
wait, he just said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can't say, well, the Christians have their way, and the Hindus and the Muslims and the whoever else had their way. We're going to come through the blood or we're not going to come. They can't both be right. You understand what I'm saying? They can't both be right. If one is true by itself, that being true means the other and all others are false. Okay? And so Elijah knew that God was going to prove himself to be the one true living God and that the people upon seeing that would be forced to turn to him and forsake their worship of Baal. It cannot both be true. Amen? And so your, your diamet, as I said, they're diametrically opposed. They can't both be true. And so you can't halt between these two opinions I want us to, to look at a scripture real quick, and we'll go back to 1 Kings 18. But turn with me to Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Now, this is in Ephesus, okay? Paul preached, and there was great revival in Ephesus. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, seven... Sons of Sceva had tried to cast out demons and couldn't do it and so forth, and demons spoke to them. Anyway, look at verse 18. And many that believed, and remember, this is the place of Diana of the Ephesians. Great, and they had a big, huge temple. Everybody knew, and they sold their trinkets, and the coppersmith and silversmith made their living buying and selling these little shrine idols and that people bought as their little charms, and they worshiped in the temple of Diana of the Ephesians. And God breaks through all of that. Doesn't mean every single person got saved, but it says there was great revival, and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. I preached on this several months ago. Many of them also, which used curious arts, this would have been witchcraft and so forth, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. What's the point of that scripture? The point to me is that when the people realized, these Ephesians that had been bewitched and they had been deceived and they had all their lives and their ancestors, everybody had worshipped. We all know Ephesus is a city that worships Diana. All right? And when they saw that the Lord was God through the preaching of, of Paul and through the miracles that were done, and when they saw uh, the power to cast demons out and so forth, and many believed, okay? And not only did they believe, they didn't say, well, we'll try to blend in Christianity, this religion that Paul preached. We'll try to blend that in. We don't want to make too many waves because this whole place is really a worship worship in place of Diana, we'll try to find some medium and blend in our Christianity and the worship of Diana. It's not at all what they did. That's why I read this scripture. And many believed and came and confessed and showed their deeds. They came out publicly. They went out in the streets and they said, here's all our books of witchcraft. Here's all our books of Diana. Here's all our little silver trinkets and stuff that we have to the goddess Diana. And they said, we are followers of Jesus Christ now. And it was literally, they burned them publicly and people saw them. Oh, that guy there, 
Ooh, he's going to be in trouble. He's coming out publicly against dying of the Ephesians. So what? Is taking a stand for the Lord. It's coming out publicly. And we live in a day and age where so much of Christianity is trying to find that happy medium with the world. We don't want to cause problems at work. We don't want to cause problems at school. We don't want to cause problems in higher education. We don't want to cause problems in the government. We don't want to cause problems. And we talked about Obadiah, and that was his biggest problem. He feared God, but he feared men as well. And we need to fear God alone, and then we have no one else to fear. Okay? And so upon these Ephesians believing in Jesus Christ, it was clear and cut. Their belief led them to forsake the other. And, y'all, it has to be that way. If we preach any other kind of Christ or any other kind of Christianity because of convenience, then it's, it's false. It's not what God's called us to live, and it's not what he's called us to proclaim to others. What will it cost me to follow Christ? Everything. What will it cost you to give your life to Jesus and be saved? Nothing. He paid the price. What will it cost you to live for God in this world that doesn't know him? It'll cost you everything. So decide early on, am I ready to pay that? Don't get halfway down this thing and say, oh, I didn't count on that. Count on it, okay? Count on it now. Peter, When you, I want you to feed my sheep. Do you really love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself. You went wherever you wanted to go. Can I tell you something, though, Peter? When you get older, somebody's going to take you by your hand and lead you where you don't want to go. This spake he signifying by what death Peter would glorify the Lord. He wasn't scared of it. Peter says in 2 Peter, I know, I know soon I'm going to put off this earth, earthly tabernacle. I'm getting ready to go be with the Lord. But he was wholly his, completely his. He had already counted himself as being dead. That's how Elijah was. That's why he didn't fear Ahab or Jezebel or the 850 prophets and priests of Baal. He stood with heaven at his back. He stood in the presence of Jehovah. There's a cost, and there is a cost in a, that needs to be counted. And there's a cost that needs to be paid. Not for our salvation. Don't ever think it is. Not for, to buy our way to heaven or forgiveness of sins. The blood of Jesus is the full cost of that. And he will help us with the other. But what he demands is all. And what he gives in return is all, right? Preached it just a few weeks about uh, ago about surrendering everything to the Lord. When these Ephesians surrendered to Christ, they said, we're done with the other. doesn't mean they were instantly perfect. It does mean we're done with this other false deity and everything that we have to do with it. We're done with it. And we're not ashamed to say it publicly. There's a strength that comes from that as well. There's a power. That's why a lot of times when people are saved, it's good to testify. It's good to come up before others because they knew you went, okay? They knew you said when you used to be walking around with a beer in your hand, cutting up and cursing, and now you're saved. And they can come up publicly and be baptized, or they can come up publicly and testify. And it doesn't mean that that testifying perfects them, but there's a strength in that that helps set you apart to where you're identifying yourself publicly and unashamedly, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I used to be that over there. I'm not that anymore. I'm done with that over there. 
Doesn't mean you'll never have another temptation or a struggle. It is a great way to start, though, to start off right off the bat saying, I'm a follower of Christ. I've talked about before, I put all my, my music collection in a huge Rubbermaid trash can and shoved it to the road. A lot of money went down the drain, but you know what? It helped me. It helped me take a clear stand, okay? And we have to do things like that from times. We have to come out and be separate. I'm going to close, y'all. We're going to go through in the next few weeks and talk about the, you know, these, these statements. They're all made back-to-back back real quickly by Elijah to the people. What did he say? The first thing is, why are you halting between two opinions? Choose which God. And then he's going to make the challenge, the God that answers by fire and so forth. And we're going to go through all that and talk about it. But he had no doubt that God was going to send the fire. And he had no doubt that a few short time afterwards, God was going to send the rain. Amen. That was so badly needed. I'll just close with that. Um, Father, we thank you tonight, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus. God, that we can step out by faith, that we can hear you, that we can know that we've heard from you, Lord, that we can take a stand, God, privately, and we could take a stand publicly. People around us will know that we're followers of Christ. And and Father, I thank you that you're with us. You give us the power to take the stand, and you give us the power day by day to stand, having done all to stand. And I thank you for Elijah, and I thank you for his life, and I thank you for the simplicity of it, and the faith, and the single-mindedness of it all, and the undivided heart that he had, Lord, just to believe you, to, to desire your glory, to trust you, to obey you. And you used one man against the nation to turn them to you, God. You can use us, God. And I pray that you would, Lord, in Jesus' name.